Our scripture lesson this night comes from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man, and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring a comp his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin he has, that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. And in the fourth year shall all its fruit be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. 
You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The organizing principle around which our whole chapter is built is there in verse 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. As I've been working through the, the sort of the holiness code here in Leviticus, I'm just more and more struck with, sorry to say it, but how wrong R.C. Sproul is in the way he talks about holiness. Sproul talks about holiness as being something that makes God different from us. And that sort of, which then turns be holy as I am holy into a mess. How can we be holy if God is holy? Well, this, here's what's happened in a lot of American evangelicalism, which was rooted in, it's a guy named Rudolf Otto in the idea, in the, in the idea of the holy, but it's, there was this idea of the holy as being this other, this sort of the absolutely transcendent, this other, the, that's not the holy. In one sense, there's, there's an aspect of truth to it, and that's why all of us probably, when we heard R.C. Sproul, we all resonated with it and went, ah, yes, that's... You're, you're, you're. But there's something fundamentally wrong with how we think about holiness if we just think of the holy as that which makes God different and separate and beyond us. Because then what does he mean by be holy as I am holy? What happens? And... Probably I've done this, so sorry. But what happens is we wind up thinking about holiness as that which makes us separate from other people. Because if holiness is what makes God separate from us, well, we, we can't actually be that. So what does holiness become? Holiness becomes how we're separate from the nations, how we're separate from other people, how we're separate from those unbelievers and pagans and Gentiles. That's not what God's saying. When God says, be holy as I am holy, this is all part of what he's doing in the whole book of Leviticus. We haven't started a new section with something with some totally different topic. What was the whole problem we've been seeing? Well, the glory of the Lord filled the holy place. And this was the holy place where God was supposed to meet with his people. But when the glory of the Lord fills the holy place, there's a problem we can't get in there. How can an unholy people, how can a people of unclean lips enter the presence of a holy God? Well, this is the whole thing that the first half of Leviticus showed us as we, get, we got then to the Day of Atonement when the high priest enters the holy of holies. The high priest enters the age to come. The high priest enters the presence of God. The, when the high priest does this, this is, oh, now we have come into the presence of God. This is what God is. God is saying, I want you to be with me. God's holiness is not that which sort of keeps us out. The holiness of God is actually that which draws us in. The problem is that if we are not holy, <laughs> then what happens when we come into the presence of God's holiness? That's where Sproul was right. 
coming into the presence of God's holiness when you are unholy winds up poof. But the purpose of God's holiness is so that we might share in His holiness? How, how, how could we share in God's holiness if God's holiness is that which makes Him utterly distinct and different? It's because God's holiness is what draws us to Him. This is what God, the, the fact that God is holy is what impels Him to then cleanse an unholy people. And uh, that's why all of these sacrifices... Why, why did God give all these sacrifices to Israel? so that they might be purified from their uncleanness, so that they might be cleansed of their sins, so that they might come into the presence of a holy God. And so when we think about what holiness is, when we hear the call for us to be holy as God is holy, He is calling us to share in His holiness, which also has the effect. And this is where our Lord Jesus plainly understood this, because our Lord Jesus What does it mean for the Holy One to come in our flesh? What does it mean for the Holy One to join Himself to our humanity? He reaches out and He touches the unclean. This holiness, that when the Holy One came in our flesh, He joined Himself to our humanity so that He might join us to Himself, so that He might bring that which was unclean, that which was unholy, that that He might bring that to Himself. And so when you start to see this, you start to see that even the shape and the structure of chapter 19 makes more sense. Because where does it end? It ends with the sojourner. It ends with the outsider. It ends with the one who's not an Israelite being drawn in and made part of the holy community. Because when you are holy as I am holy, it has the effect of drawing in. That has a very different effect than if you think of holiness as that which pushes away. But the holiness that God shows and he calls us to show is a holiness that draws in. Now, last time we went through verses 3 to 18 in the call to love God and neighbor. Um, and, and And this is where... God says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Israel is, is being established as God's, God's son, God's kingdom, God's people. And because God has chosen Israel for himself, because of their covenant relation to a holy God, all of life must be sanctified for his glory. And as we saw last time, the, the first half of the chapter is, has lots of connections with the Ten Commandments, not in the same order. But since Moses is now turning to the, the ethical holiness that God calls us to, it's not surprising that the, the, the first section of his, of his uh, discussion focuses on the fundamental covenant law, the Ten Commandments. And as we saw, the, the first three had to do with the first table of the law, which, and you, you think about the, the first table of the law, focuses on love the Lord your God, uh, fear your mother and father, observe the Sabbath, don't turn to idols. And, and then that section on partaking of sacrifices properly, that this is where the, uh, as, we, as I mentioned this morning, that the, it's, it's, the reason why you shouldn't leave it to the third day was, was not because of it, they didn't have refrigeration, uh, it's because Jesus rose on the third day. It, it's not about... Pre- I mean, they had means of preserving meat. They knew, fo- they knew how to do that. 
But God says, no, that's not what you do with the peace offering. The peace offering is designed to show you Jesus. And then we saw in verses 9 to 18, the, the five expressions of love toward neighbor. And the refrain, I am the Lord, reminds Israel that, that if they fail to exhibit holiness in their relations with one another, if they fail to draw near to God in the way that they live, then they will stand before God and give an account before him. I am the Lord. I'm calling you to live this way. Don't hate your brother in your heart, but love your neighbor as yourself. At the very heart of holiness is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And if, if you just think about holiness in terms of being separate, then this, the command to love isn't really at the heart of holiness. But all of these exhortations to holiness it emphasize the importance of engaging well, loving well, seeking relationship and connection, not pushing away. And if you think about the two chapters in between the Day of Atonement and here, chapter 16 was on the Day of Atonement, but chapter 17 was talking about eating and the sustaining of life and how it connects to worship and the peace offering. Chapter 18 on sexual relations, the, the reproduction of life and how it connects to worship, the, the high priest entering the most holy place. God's holiness is not about him being far off and distant. God's holiness is what impels him to draw near and create a way for us to draw near to him. I mean, really, if you think about what I mentioned in the pastoral notes about my, sort of the, the beer and buildings group, sort of why am I spending so much time in working in historic preservation? Because I'm seeking to draw people near to God. If you got somebody who would never dream of darkening the door of a church, how do you show them Jesus? you got to get close enough to them to be able to show them Jesus. And that's part of what we are called to do as his people, is show forth, show forth this holy way before the watching world. And God sets forth nine more statutes in our passage that illuminate holiness for us in uh, in verses 19 to 37. And, and when you think about, I mean, as you listen to these, probably you're like, okay, some of this, some of this sounds like just sort of like clear, okay, good moral principles, exactly what we should be doing. Some of it you're sort of like, um, is, that, is that really still applicable? Is this really what we're supposed to be doing? Uh, some of it sounds awfully ceremonial. Some of it sounds awfully civil. Some of it sounds rather moral. Sort of, wait, what do we make of all this? It, it reminds us that for Moses and for Israel, the law was one. They didn't have these categories of, there's the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law. They, they didn't think in those terms. For them, it was simply the law. Here's what God told us to do. We should, we should do it. God said so. Uh, but the reason why we've come up with the categories of moral, ceremonial, and civil is because, because the law, the one law, has, in one sense, you could say the whole of the law is moral, the whole of the law is ceremonial, the whole of the law is civil. In one sense, the whole of the law is moral because it all reflects, it's all about what God says. So that's where, therefore, the principles on every point are still valuable principles. The ceremonial law, okay, here's, here's how it points to Jesus. And every law points to Jesus. So every law has a ceremonial aspect to it, you might say. 
And every law has a civil aspect because, well, it's part of Israel's law as the people of God. And so this is where perhaps it's helpful for us to think about it in terms of as we go through, we're not, gonna, we're not going through, and you may have noticed this already, but I don't say, oh, this doesn't apply anymore. I'm also not saying this is sort of exactly, every, must do it exactly to the letter, but rather the, in the whole thing it's, what is God saying to his people about what it means to be holy? Because then translating that into what that looks like today hopefully becomes a little easier. But it's not, I mean, when you think about the way that, that Paul approaches the law, he's very clear that he's, he's not throwing out the law and saying it's irrelevant. He's also not saying, and everybody needs to do exactly everything that's written in the law. What he's saying is, understand what, if you understand what holiness is, and if you understand what it means to be holy as God is holy, then you will see, here's how to take these principles and apply them in life today. Verse 19 is a great place to start. <laughs> you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. The, the principle here, you know, that those who are holy should not get mixed up with those who are unholy. Uh, the, the statutes in the second half of Leviticus 19 describe a pattern of life that expresses our union and communion with God. And the particulars are not necessarily identical today. So, for instance, uh, sowing your field with two kinds of seed. There's, that, that, this is not a commandment that one... Oh, so, you know, or if you've got a cloth... I, mean, I suspect probably most of us are wearing a cloth clothing with two kinds of material in your clothing. I mean, very few of us wear only 100% anything. Um, but that's where, yeah, so the, the, the particulars may not be identical today, but what are, the, what are the principles and what are the ways of living that distinguish the Christian church from the world around us? I mean, the Amish provide a, a rather clear example of what this can look like. If you want to be Amish, then you have to follow a very strict code of conduct. Now, when you talk to the Amish, they don't say, oh, thus saith the Lord, God said we have, you know, we have to do it. No, they just say, if you want to be part of our community, you have to live like this. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go to those extremes, but as our culture, I think for an awfully long time, Christians were so much at the center of the culture that we didn't really have much in the way of distinctive practices that marked us out from the world. And so as the world continues to separate from Christian practice, it's worth asking, what are the practices? I mean, one of the most obvious ones is, well, the Lord's Day. That's where the Sabbath actually becomes a really important Christian marker of we've, we've Honor the Lord on the Lord's day. We also have really small ways in which we do similar things. I mean, we say that Sunday school is at nine o'clock in the morning. There's no "thus saith the Lord." You shall come, you shall be at Sunday school at nine o'clock in the morning. But we need to have some common practice, otherwise, no one would know when to show up. But when, but also, but just as we go through, actually, we'll we'll, we'll see several issues tonight where. What are some practices? What are some patterns? What are some ways of, of living that we 
could and perhaps should develop in showing what it means to be holy, not as a means of isolating ourselves, but as a means of, of showing forth the holiness of God before the watching world. It gets more serious in verses 20 to 22. God says that if a man sexually lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man, and yet not ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. So, in other words, don't execute a man who sleeps with another man's slave woman. Uh, Now, Exodus 21 says that if she had been set free, then they'd both be executed. Because if she's free, then this is now adultery, and so both adulterers should be, uh, should be executed. But if she's another man's slave, then neither she nor her lover should be executed. Now, what is going on here? I mean, it sounds, sounds something, is this a double standard? Is this allowing for the mistreatment of slave women? If you think about what's going on, it actually provides for the protection of slave women. Since she's not free, She's not guilty of adultery. Now, it's partly, you can see here a, a hint that God thinks that slavery is not a good thing because she's a slave, therefore she doesn't have full sort of moral agency. And if you think about the implications of this for her master, if you are keeping a woman as a slave, and there's actually a strong, a strong hint here that she's being kept as a sexual slave, that, I mean, that's the, well, if you keep her as a sexual slave, then she is free to do whatever she wants, and there's nothing you can do about it. What's her what's her punishment? Nothing. So God, basically, God's protecting the slave woman, not protecting the man who is involved in the situation. Now, we keep seeing all through Leviticus that Moses is addressing all sorts of, you might say, real-life situations. Moses is not saying, this is a good thing. He's saying, okay, here's the reality on the ground. Stuff's happening. And he's saying, things are not, th- this is not the way things should be. Uh, when it says that, on, that the, the, only the man is punished, when it says make a distinction, uh, this has, probably better translated, make an inquiry. Uh, the, the investigation focuses on him only. The slave woman bears no responsibility. He is publicly rebuked for his sin, but she was not free. As a slave, she is, by definition, coerced. You might say this is, this is statutory rape. But no matter how old she is. I mean, in American law, we actually make the same distinction. If, if, the, the, if the victim is under the age of 18, it is by definition rape. Sort of that's, that's just what it is. Whatever, whatever, whatever else may, may have happened. In, this, in the same way, slaves, uh, there, there is no, she is by definition coerced. And so he must bring a guilt offering. And the guilt offering, as we saw back in chapter 5, was to be brought when someone was guilty regarding the Lord's holy things. So, what's going on here? Sexual relations with a slave girl is considered guilt with regard to God's holy things. Shouldn't surprise us, given what we've seen previously about how God treats sexual relations in the book of Leviticus. This is because, because your seed is for your wife, you're because uh, your priest is only supposed to enter one holy place, uh, this is where 
this is an entirely inappropriate activity and it is considered worthy of a guilt offering in order because you are guilty regarding the Lord's holy things. We, we've seen the the woman's womb is, is is portrayed in Leviticus as as a picture of the holy place. And so if you violate a slave woman's holy place, uh, you are guilty with regard to the Lord's holy things. And uh, the guilt offering you have to bring, a, a ram, this is a rather expensive offering. Only the ox is more expensive. So if you are a repeat offender, you are going to be out a lot of rams. And this is going to, this is going to cost you big time. This is not a, you know, sure, it's less than the death penalty, but it's also clearly showing this is not okay. In verses 23 to 25, then, we're told that you shall not eat the fruit of a newly planted tree for three years. Uh, in the fourth year, its fruit is holy, an offering of praise to the Lord, and presumably thus given to the priests. And then in the fifth year, you may eat it. Um, a, just a note on the economics of, of, of Leviticus. It's just interesting for me, as, I, as when you look at what winds up going to the priests for their, for their sustenance, uh, they wind up with a pretty balanced diet when you consider all of the things that God requires Israel to bring to the priests. I mean, it's not, it's not all that surprising, actually, given... You know, but it's just, that, 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 I just find it interesting. Hmm. So all the, the fruit trees, they get the, 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 uh, the fourth year, its fruit is holy. Um, and then the fifth year, you may eat of it. God demands that Israel recognize that all the fruit of the land comes from him. Uh, just as the firstborn of every animal was to be offered to the Lord, so also the first harvest of every tree. Uh, so the, the, the idea generally in the ancient world was that the first, you know, the first three years the, 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 the tree is growing to maturity. By the fourth year, it should be able to produce some fruit. By the fifth year, uh, it's, it's a fully grown tree. And so the first good harvest would go to the Lord. Then uh, verse 26 provides a prohibition for the fourth time of eating blood. Four times now in Leviticus, we've been told, don't eat blood. There, there haven't been many commandments issued more often than this. I mean, it's, what, why is God so concerned about this? Well, what's going on here is you have several prohibitions that follow, but what God is saying is, Think of what I told you about not eating blood. Now apply that principle to these other things. So, you shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So, God is saying, think about, think about these other practices in terms of what I told you about eating blood. What was that about again? Well, the animal died so that you might live. You can eat the flesh, but don't eat, do not eat the blood. The life is in the blood, and the animal gave its life, its blood, so that you might live. And so when you think about what does it mean to sort of, well, to not tattoo yourself, well, all of this has to do with the death practices of, of the cultures around them. Fortune-telling, interpreting omens, cutting hair or body in certain ways were all involved in ancient rituals involving ways to, uh, to av in some cases, avoid or commemorate death. And by grounding these things in the principle of not eating blood, 
God shows us that we must, we must conform our rituals and practices to his temple, not to the death practices of our culture. And that's where, I, when people, people, people will sometimes say, so does God still say we can't get tattoos? Does that still... And I'm like, the point that God is making is, because if, if, you, if, if all you do is take these, these are the only things prohibited, then there's all sorts of strange death practices in world cultures that would then be just fine, because... God doesn't give an exhaustive list of all the death practices that, that are a bad idea. What he's saying is, how do you conform your practice to the temple? How do you conform your practice to a, approaching God's holiness? Uh, part of it would simply be, what I mean, in our culture, I mean, actually, if, I don't know if you've ever had a chance, but when, when you see somebody with a lot of tattoos, it just... Ask them about their tattoos. It's, it's usually pretty easy to get them talking. Um, and you start realizing that, okay, our culture has a lot of very different ideas about what tattoos are for. And so this is, this is not... I mean, sure, there are still, there are still ways in which uh, tattoos are, can be related to death practices. I mean, oftentimes you'll, you'll, you'll hear stories about some deceased loved one that uh, because they wanted to remember their loved one, and so they got them. They got the tattoo. Um, the key, the key in thinking about the root principle again: do not eat flesh with the blood in it. What was that principle about? It's about the resurrection. It's about remember that Jesus is the one whose blood we partake of. Because he's the one who has overcome death. So whatever death practices are we engage in, our death practices, and when I say death practice, what, what are the rituals, what are the customs that we use when we approach death? Whether it's our own death, whether it's the death of loved ones, um, you know, omens and fortunes. I mean, when you, when you read about ancient cultures, that's all about Okay, you know, I want to know, am I going to die? Um, sort of, or what do I do to you know, help make sure that my, my, my child doesn't die when they go on this trip? I mean, there's all these sorts of, all these sorts of practices are all about death. And how, what practices do we have, should we have, when we think about our culture, when we think about our lives, that when we think about how to live before God, how to live for the resurrection, and that's where, to the particular question of tattoos, I don't think I don't think it's actually scripture would say one way or the other in terms of in modern American culture getting a tattoo. It's a different thing than it was in the ancient world. So, the tattoo, there's nothing. Yeah, the the question is how the, for the Christian is how does that to, that tattoo give you a resurrection focus rather than a you might say a death focus, uh, because how can we embody the practice of drawing near to God? It's it's not just a, it's not enough to say oh don't, don't just don't do this list of bad things. We need to recognize that the significance of these laws is born in the body and fulfilled more and more as we become one body with God's body in Jesus, because in Jesus. We have been made one flesh with him because he is our heavenly bridegroom who has joined us to himself. And so how do we practice? Uh, and that's, it really, 
it's, it's a pretty serious question I, I have because I don't have the answers to that. I want to know. How can we do better? It's something I've, I've often thought about in terms of you know, our funeral customs and practices and realizing, hmm, there are, some, there are some neat things that Christians have done in other times and places. We could do better. Uh, we've, you know, same thing is also true with wedding practices and all sorts of things. But yeah, hearing, hearing Ibrahim talk about the way, the way Sierra Leonean weddings work was, was like, huh, we could do better. Um, but, but this theme of life and death has been a theme that's been running through the whole of Leviticus thus far. Remember, the whole point about the holy and the common that the holy is, is that which is in the presence of God. The common is, is the ordinary everyday stuff. But then within the common, there's the clean and the unclean. The clean moving toward the holy, the unclean moving away. And within the unclean, there's the ordinary unclean. But then there's the abominations and the depravities. And, the, there's, and this, this whole, these whole, all these distinctions that Leviticus has been making is talking about there, there's a way of life that moves toward God and then there's a way of death that moves away. And God is trying to teach Israel this and he gives them all of these ceremonies and things in order to help them with this. And that's where those, those same ceremonies aren't necessarily all that helpful to us. But the principle that we're learning is how do we shape our own culture? And when I, here, I'm not talking about shaping the whole Americas. I'm just talking about our own culture here at Michiana Covenant, our own culture here in this church with, with one another. How do we shape our own practices in ways that point us lifeward rather than deathward? And actually, this is where we keep going in, in verses 29 and 30, because you shall not make your daughter a prostitute. You shall not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. What does Sabbath and prostitution have to do with each other? Hopefully nothing. But why are they together? It's an interesting juxtaposition. Part of it is religious prostitution was almost universal in the ancient world. This is pretty much every culture, every religion, they have their, their cult prostitutes. And actually, the Hebrew for this is Kedesah, which Kedesah is the same root as Kadosh, the Hebrew word for holy. Cult prostitutes are called holy women. And you're like, that doesn't sound right. Right. It shouldn't be. But part of it is, in the ancient world, this is a lucrative career. There's good money in this, and in those days, this is not, you know, people aren't isolated individuals going off having their careers. So if your daughter is a cult prostitute, that's making some really, pretty good money for the, for the household. There's prestige in it for the household, because this is, I mean, we, perhaps we've gotten used to a world in which prostitution is considered a bad thing. In those days, it wasn't. And so... This is a prestigious position. When you think about Rahab being a prostitute, don't think she was some lowlife. She's known to the king. She's somebody important in their community. She's actually, you know, this is, this is a powerful position in the ancient world. But God declares that such prostitution is far from holy. It is depravity. And 
the land, if it falls into prostitution, becomes full of depravity. And what's more, God says, it profanes your daughter. Now, I mean, part of the problem is that we've, I mean, in our day, we, we still have some of the taboos about prostitution, and yet, um, we've just changed the name. We have cult prostitutes in America. They're called movie stars. Okay, porn stars are the most graphic ones, but quite frankly, a whole lot of movies are objectifying women and glorifying sex, and basically, actresses who or actors who take off their clothes in order to get people to show up in theaters. What are they doing? They're getting paid a whole lot of money. They got a whole lot of influence and power for sex. Sounds like prostitution to me. And again, remember the connection that chapters 12, 15, and 18 have made between the sanctuary and sexual relations. That when you think about, I mean, our, our culture profanes daughters by sexualizing them, and not surprisingly, the land has become full of depravity. I mean, this is, so, so what's God saying we should do? You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. Reverence my sanctuary. Now, reverence my sanctuary and remember what we've been seeing about the womb. That the sanctuary, that this is why it connects to your daughters. Because your daughters are also, they have pictures of that sanctuary within them. And you know, Peter reflects on this in 1 Peter 3 when he says, Do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The imperishable beauty, that adorning of the hidden person of the heart, is imperishable. It doesn't fade. It doesn't wither. This beauty grows more and more over time and is truly visible. It cannot be attained by external adornment. There's nothing you can do with a mirror to attain this beauty. The way you cultivate this beauty is through your character, through your conduct, as you love God and neighbor, as you become holy as I am holy. And so God connects sexual holiness with keeping Sabbath and reverencing the sanctuary because the practices and patterns we follow in daily life, how we keep Sabbath, how we reverence the sanctuary, help protect us from going off the rails. And it's part of why we have two services on the Lord's Day. My observation is that churches that drop down to one service often have increasing difficulty avoiding the encroachment of the other six days. Sunday afternoon soon slips into just another day for doing all the things of life. But when we reverence God's sanctuary, when we come to Him at the beginning and at the end of the Lord's Day, when we remember that this day is His day, that begins to reshape our patterns of life in the other six days. Because the way in which we live together as the people of God shapes us in all of life. Verse 31 then says, You shall not seek out wizards or mediums because they would make you unclean. Why does he say they would make you unclean? Because they deal with the dead. Now, it's worth noting, Scripture never says that they are fakes, quacks, and pretenders. 
Scripture I mean, the, just presents them as they claim them to be. So it is assumed that they have some sort of contact with the dead. And if they have contact with the dead, well, <laughs> that's unclean. And it would render you unclean. The living have no business with the dead. I am the Lord your God. God says, this is, this is, your, your task is not to communicate with the dead. Your task, your calling is to come to me, to be holy as I am holy. And instead, rather than f- focus on the dead, God says, focus on the living and particularly focus on the elderly. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. Don't go honoring the dead. Honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. In the context of all the discussion of worship and holiness, it's quite interesting. that Because at the beginning of the chapter, we were told to revere our mother and father, and here we're told to respect the elderly. Respect for the aged is not optional. And why? Because we fear God. And because we fear God, we honor the face of an old man. Here is a man, here is a woman whom God has blessed with long life. And so we honor you because you have walked before God all these years. You, you, have, you have lived and God, God's blessing has given you long life. And likewise, love the stranger among you. You were strangers in Egypt. Did you like how you were treated? Israel is to be a hospitable people. Hospitality is love for strangers. You are to treat the sojourner as one of yourselves. You shall love him as yourself. In verse 18, we were told, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now we're being told that the stranger, the sojourner, is also your neighbor. If you think about it, when, when Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? He could have just quoted Leviticus 19.34. Now, what he does is he tells a story that illustrates Leviticus 19.34. Because who was the, the neighbor? Well, it's actually the, the Samaritan showed neighborliness, loved his neighbor by loving the Jew in the ditch. How do you treat sojourners? Moses says, treat them as another neighbor. Remember what it's like to be the new person. Remember what it's like to feel alone. When, when you see somebody, a visitor coming to come to church, you know, treat them as you wish others would treat you. Same thing, same thing in, your neighborhood, in your neighborhood. When somebody moves in uh, three doors down. So, I know, sometimes it feels awkward. You know, do they really want, but yeah, go knock on the door. Say, welcome to the neighborhood. Glad you're here. Uh, this is, it's just, it's just, how do you live neighborly lives? Treat others like, do you like it when, when, when you first move in and somebody knocks on your door and says, welcome to the neighborhood? I mean, yeah. Love, love your neighbor as yourself. Then in verses 35 and 36, God says that you are to use just and fair weights and measures. In other words, your economic relations are to be governed by God's holy character. He is the one who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you must act with the same even-handed justice that he does. And... This, and again, notice how all of these practices, all of these calls to holiness have to do with how you engage with others, how you connect with others. It's not pushing people away and saying, oh, I am different. It's the difference is shown in how you love and connect. 
One of the most common deceptive practices in the ancient world was for merchants to have two different sets of weights. One that they would use when they were buying, one that they would use when they were selling. Because if you have two different weights, then hey, the, you, you, you're, you're, you're buying 50 pounds and you're selling 55 pounds. Hey, hey, what do you know? I made some money on that. Wait, where does the five pounds come from? Oh, I just use different weights. Easy profit. And especially when part of it is, I mean, think about it back then. Uh, how do you decide how much something weighs? You need to have an agreed-on weight that you're using. to, And so if you just happen to have two of them, then you just know which pocket to reach in to grab the right weight. Then you... Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and yes, uh, in the ancient world, pretty much every culture thought this was a dastardly practice, and they have all sorts of penalties for it. But God says, yeah, it's a dastardly practice. Don't do it. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You don't do this to each other. Because... Such practices lead to death. Followed consistently, theft leads to death. Because if you just take a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, eventually he's got nothing left and he starves to death. So Leviticus is teaching us to think, ah, there's the way of life and the way of death. That as we things that are moving in the direction of the unclean and worse are moving towards death. Things that are clean, moving towards the holy, are moving toward life. And this is why John says that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John goes on to say that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his, his own place, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came in order to bring life and light to those who dwelt in darkness, to those who were heading toward death. This is what the Holy One did when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He did this to draw us to Himself, that we might be His. And He calls us to observe His statutes and His rules and do them so that we might draw others to Him as well. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Because it's too easy to fall into practices of pushing others away and being isolated and yet you call us to connect and to engage because you came and entered our world in the person of your son who joined himself to our flesh in order that he might join us to you that we might have life Lord thank you and thank you that you have called us to share your holiness that we might be holy as you are holy that we might live as your people who are no longer slaves to sin and death, no longer in bondage to, to, to the devil, but have been made your own children and fellow heirs with Jesus through his death and resurrection, through his life, through his mighty triumph over the powers. And Father, help us, because apart from your grace and apart from your mercy, we, we can do nothing. And so... Help us to love you with our whole heart. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. That we, might, that we might humble ourselves before your mighty hand and deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. That we might not 
pursue the, the empty and, and selfish ways of our culture, but rather that we might pursue the holy ways of your Son, which bring righteousness and peace. Lord, help us. Give us wisdom in our, in our several callings, in our, the places where you put us, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our, in, in our workplaces, in our, in our schools. In each place where we go, help us, Lord, to see the one who is afflicted, the sojourner, the stranger, the one who is alone and afraid. And help us, Lord, to love our neighbor, to love the sojourner, to draw them to you because you are our refuge, our fortress, and our peace. Father, thank you for, for how you have brought us to yourself, that we might have life. So as we walk this, this week, give us life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.